This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to give you a main event preview for UFC 249. We're going to go brawls deep with Coach Duke Rufus talking about the main co-main and, of course, Anthony Pettis versus Donald Cerrone. I'm going to give you an undercard five fights to watch, plus we check in from Jacksonville, Florida with MMA junkies John Morgan. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. This is time for the main event preview. Man, people don't realize this. This is such a historic and important matchup, man. Big time important. Huge. For both guys, of course. But this is, it's not got the action-packed, um, well, yeah, no, it does. You know what? It does have action packed. It does. It has, it has all of that. Uh, I, I am, I am not telling the truth about that when I'm saying it's not action packed. It's just got so many other pieces of significance to it that you begin to lose track of all the other things. So let's get to some of the numbers here. All right. Tony Ferguson, 26 and three, Justin Gaethje, 21 and two. Those two losses, of course, happened inside the ultimate fighting championship. Once to Eddie Alvarez and once to Justin Gaethje. Tony Ferguson's average fight time, 10 minutes and four seconds, about two rounds. For Justin Gaethje, 7.56. He gets it done. His best work is inside of two rounds. Always remember that. Doesn't mean he can't win in the third. It just means traditionally he doesn't. Height is supposed to be the same, 5.11. They're both 155. Uh, Ferguson has a six-inch reach advantage. He will use it at times, and at times he won't. This will be relevant in just a minute, but for the numbers, there you are. They are both labeled as orthodox, but both can stance switch Ferguson a little bit more. And then uh, Ferguson's about uh, four years older. All right, listen to these numbers. You just can't believe them. Tony Ferguson lands, strikes per minute, 5.81. All right, Justin Gaethje 8.57. Folks, I told you this before. Most UFC fighters are in the three to four range. Nearly at six is is Ferguson, which is very high. 8.57 is off the charts. I don't think I've ever seen another fighter that lands that that much. I've seen some in the sixes, and that's it. And those are for like volume-heavy fighters. Justin Gaethje's numbers are insane. Striking accuracy, 45%. For Tony, 55% for Justin. That's a little bit misleading because, yes, Tony might be inaccurate at times, but because he's just sort of flowing. It's not like he's really, you know, often strategically planning a punch and then it misses. It's more just like it misses in the moment of things, which I, I get. It counts towards defense, but that's they're not exactly all equivalent. Okay, strikes absorbed per minute. Tony eats a few, 3.75. Right, that's fairly high, but remember, he lands at 5.81, so he has a positive striking differential. Remember what I told you before about Justin Gaethje, 8.57? <laughs> I've never seen a number like this. He absorbs 9.67. Folks, not only does he get hit more than he lands, he has a number almost three times what Ferguson has. 9.67 is the highest I have ever. I'm not saying it is the highest, but in all the years that we do this, I've never seen a number that high. That is 
off the charts insane. Next level. Striking defense, Tony Ferguson, 63%. Justin Gaethje, about half, 54. Takedowns per 15 minutes. On average, Tony Ferguson, 0.56. Ready for Justin Gaethje? Zero. Six UFC fights, not attempted a single effing takedown. Takedown accuracy for Ferguson, 42. Remember, a lot of those might just be, you know, off-the-cuff stuff. It's not like full-throated efforts all the time. Justin Gaethje, zero. Zero. Doesn't even try. This guy wrestled at a high-level Division I in college. Doesn't care. Takedown defense, about equivalent, 75% to 80%. And the submission average is a big difference. Tony Ferguson, 1.4 to Justin Gaethje's zero. Justin Gaethje attempted zero takedowns and attempted zero submissions in his entire UFC career. Is that not? I mean, his numbers are unlike any other fighter in that division. Division. In the UFC. I've done a million of these for men, for women, for heavyweights, for strawweights, and for everybody in between, black, white, you name it. Russian, American, left-handed, right-handed, wrestler versus striker, whatever. I've never seen numbers like his, ever, ever. He is an outlier in numerous respects. The last five fights for Tony Ferguson, they are all wins. He beat Donald Cerrone. He beat Anthony Pettis. He beat Kevin Lee. He beat Rafael Dos Anjos, and he beat Lando Venata. Your last five for Justin Gaethje. His last three have been great. He beat Donald Cerrone. He beat Edson Barboza. He beat James Vick. And by the way, he beat all three of them inside a single round. However, prior to that was a bit of a reckoning moment. He lost in a, to a fourth-round TKO to Dustin Poirier. He lost in a third-round TKO to Eddie Alvarez. Alvarez no longer with the promotion. Okay, so those are the numbers. Now, Duke is going to give you great insight here. I like to do something a little bit different with these, in addition to giving you sort of the specifics of how the, the numbers match up. I always want to tell you to look for conditions. On my YouTube channel, I had a conversation with Brad Riddell. He is a kickboxer out of City Kickboxing in New Zealand, trains alongside Dan Hooker, Israel Adesanya. He is undefeated in the UFC and has 70-plus kickboxing bouts. Okay, And here is something that he we had talked about that he kind of confirmed for me, which is Tony's rhythm is very irregular. Watch two fighters in the UFC in virtually any weight class. You'll see this in the co-main event, by the way. They separate and then they clash. They separate and then they clash. They almost are jousting, like waves crashing into a rock or something, right? But there's spaces and then there's action. There's spaces and then there's action. Tony disrupts all of that. When, he, when he's working, he disrupts all of that. He is just in your face and you don't have these moments where you're separated, fainting, blah, 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 clash. Separated, exiting, fainting, 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 and then clap. He doesn't allow for that. It's just a steady stream of interaction with him. When that happens, it forces the other fighter to be an instinctual fighter. This is the interesting test for Justin Gaethje. The Justin Gaethje, the one who lost to Alvarez, the one who lost to Poirier, if that one is still here, he does not beat Tony Ferguson. Right? You can't beat those two guys. You're probably not going to beat Tony. The question is, can the new one do it? And the new one has shown a lot of interesting threats that could really be a problem for Tony. Heavy leg kicks is number one. And number two, the ability to close distance and slam home huge power punches. He is a very devastating puncher. 
So this is what you're looking for in terms of context. Yes, all the leg kicks flowing for Justin Gaethje, blah, blah, blah. But what you're really looking for is, is Tony disrupting Justin's rhythm to get him back to being an instinctual fighter where he's just kind of reacting? Or does Justin find enough space to take time to kind of joust? And in that jousting scenario, closing distance, switching stances, finding ways to get inside that six-inch reach differential, and then slamming home a heavy punch. Now, even if you land that, so you got to follow up on the guy and take advantage of him there, which is easier said than done. But that's the context you're looking for. What is the, who is setting the rhythm? Who is setting the pace? And is Tony constantly pressing into him? Because if that's the case, he will likely avoid the worst of it and he will likely win. If, on the other hand, Justin is disrupting him and making him fight at his pace and they're jousting and he's leg kicking and he's closing distance on him, it's going to be a, whole, a very long night or maybe a short night for that matter for Tony Ferguson. This week on World of Basketball, former American college stars Jimmy and Billy Barron joined the show, and Billy spoke about the famous heated Red Star Partisan rivalry. Let's say Partisan has the home court. We'll have to drive to a separate parking lot on the other side of the city. The team will meet there, and then we'll all board the bus with, let's say, four police cars ushering us to the gym. The place is already half full, and it's an hour and a half before the game. I mean, I looked at Marcus Page, who was on Partisan, and I said, "What's this? How does this compare to?" Carolina. He was like, can't because this is nowhere near Duke Carolina. He's like, this is so much crazier. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on Pandora and every Monday on the Sirius XM app. Joining us on the hotline is an esteemed coach, friend of the show, worked together for a brief time on Glory, and he is going to be cornering Anthony Pettis and doing a whole lot more this weekend uh, in Jacksonville, I believe. Uh, well, actually, let's get some clarification on that. One way or the other, it's Coach Duke Rufus. Hi, Coach. How are you? Hey, if I had better, I'd be twins. Uh, are you in Jacksonville? Yes, sir. How's it going down there? Are you enjoying your time, given how weird this, uh, the, the, the world we live in is now? i got to tell you, I'm not trying to not be too long-winded about this. This is one of the greatest things ever to happen in my life, not maybe to other people. But um, for Anthony and I, we both have the same sentiment that this uh, made us very appreciative of our lives, our families, our careers, and um, special things take special efforts and special uh, perspectives to get things accomplished. And we reunited uh, better than ever to this training camp. And I, I, I just think Anthony uh, figured out a lot of things in this situation. And for me personally, I, I man, I get, I've never spent so much time with my wife and daughter. It's amazing. Well, I'm glad to hear you guys are certainly finding the silver lining. Let me pick your brain, Coach, because you got a great one for it. In the main event, you got Tony Ferguson taking on Justin Gaethje. Before I ask you sort of basic questions about it, let me go a bit of a different route. Why is Tony Ferguson so hard to beat? Why? Um, he has two special things going for him. He's uh, incredibly unorthodox. Um, a three. Very well-rounded and unorthodox. I mean, I could see the guy coming out and doing an Aminari roll and trying to leg block Justin, and that's just normal. And just he's tougher than nails, man. Um, I'm very happy for Tony Ferguson. Even though Anthony didn't defeat him, I always uh, respect their adversaries. And um, this guy's deserved the title shot for a long time, and I'm glad that he's getting the opportunity to step in the octagon and prove how good he is because I think he's a hell of a fighter. 
So he's got uh, he's unorthodox. He's got great cardio. What else did you learn about him when he fought Anthony? Because Anthony had moments of success, big moments of success against him. So what was your takeaway from that fight ab- about Tony? Well, when he dropped him those three times, and he was so resilient, and he, and he was able to the, the, the weather the storm and come back. That's a special, special fighter there. I mean, we're talking about the Pettis that, that dropped, you know, Wonderboy with one bomb, and he hit, he hit Tony with some big shots, and he weathered the storm. Um, and, and he's ferocious with his elbow game, and, you know, he's very entertaining in there. Um, you know, I try and always keep perspective in this thing. Now, the guys are my enemy for a training camp and uh, for 15 or 25 minutes of the fight. But they always will have my respect, and uh, you know I respect Tony a lot. He's a great fighter. I'm actually pulling for Tony, and I love Justin too. But you know, there's just something to be said uh, about Tony. He's earned his right to get here, and then some. Here's what the thing that I come down on, Coach. And if I'm wrong, by all means, please tell me. It's just where my brain is at. Is that when you watch Tony, and he's really got he's he's in command of the fight. Let's say. He, you know, uh, he, he just, he doesn't get off of you. Like, there's no chance to, like, circle out, think about things, faint in front of him, get going. He just disrupts all of that timing and all of that rhythm, and he forces you to be instinctual. You know, Justin has made a lot of improvements, but if Tony gets that going, true or false, Coach, he might end up going back to being instinctual, which I don't think serves him over the long haul. No, because um, I think you'd see, I, I think a, a possible result, you know, here's what I think is going to happen. Justin's going to try and catch him early with a punch, catch him cold if he can. But the other thing I see happening is how Brian Ortega was able to take out the great Frankie Edgar with that elbow, because that is the kryptonite of the boxer, the elbow and knee game. That is uh, elbows versus punches. Uh, you know, a lot of classical boxers get into that elbow range and, that's how you navigate fighting a good guy is elbow versus fist. And Tony has shown he's great at that. I see. What about the leg kicking game of Justin? It's pretty good, huh? Um, yes, it is. But, uh, you know, uh, I just think that Tony is very unorthodox. I could see Tony using that to his advantage to counter off of that as well. <laughs> I see. And, and by the way, we all know Tony has the best cardio. So fair to say this is Justin's fight maybe early, but the longer it goes, it absolutely favors someone like Ferguson, even though he's had two weight cuts in three weeks. Yeah, I mean, he, but I tell you, Justin, he, he is very well trained, is very well uh, disciplined, is very... Uh, intent on what he wants to do in the octagon. That's what I do like about Justin. I mean, he keeps it simple, stupid, but man, he, he, he is so good at what he does. And when I say simple, stupid, I don't mean it's a bad thing. I think that's a great thing. You know, it, it's like Jordan, give me the ball. I know what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to take it to the rack or I'm going to pull up and shoot. Stop it. You know, you know, Justin's either coming with a, a overhand or a hook. We'll stop it. That's his mentality, and, and I enjoy that about him, that he has such confidence in his skills. Coach Duke Rufus joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Coach, let me just see if I can get your, pick your brain on uh, the co-main event very briefly, which is Dominic Cruz. I have said this on the show this week. This guy lost time, came back, and beat Mizugaki. Lost even more time, came back, 
and beat TJ Dillashaw. He has lost even more time this time, now 35 years of age. Would you not agree, Coach, if he comes back and wins against Henry Cejudo, who I think we could both agree is a pretty formidable opponent, that's got to be one of the all-time great stories in sports. For sure. I mean, I I go way back with Dominic and the WDC. I've always been impressed with uh, a lot of people, they, they talk about schoolwork, et cetera, et cetera, and his unique style of fighting. But honestly, what makes Dominic uh, very special is he's a hard-nosed person. Uh, he's a very hard guy to break, and he's a very determined man, and, and I respect that a lot about him. Um, and, and he's such a student of the game. That's why he's such a great broadcaster. You know, I think Henry's a great fighter, but Dominic is big at 135, awkward has some unique movement that is hard to time. And uh, speaking of Tony Ferguson, I just saw him here. Uh, <laughs> I gave him a fist pump. Like I said, that's my pick in the main event. Um, but, uh, you know, I think Dominic is a very special, resilient person. I, I think he's going to give Saludo uh, a lot of different books that he hasn't seen yet. And, um, yeah, I think that's a telltale in the fight. You have the Orthodox fighters versus the guys who cultivated their own unique style of fighting. And uh, I value that. It's something, honestly, that um, Anthony Pettis and I went back to the drawing board with is we're not trying to play other people's games anymore. We're trying to play uh, the Pettis game. We're back to the Pettis Quando, a lot of other things. We've learned from our losses and some of our adversaries. And, you know, what I like to do, um, I got to give the respect. Anyone who beats us, they they teach us some lessons to learn. Even in guys um, that we've learned from in winning that we had hard times with, we've taken a lot from uh, Wonder Boy Thompson's uh, book of skills too, as well. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I think sometimes I do anything injustice if we don't use this full pedigree of martial arts skills, and that's something we got back to in this camp, and that's what I really like about Tony and Dominic. They present a different type of fight that's hard to get prepared for. Where do you find someone to mimic and spar Tony Ferguson? Where do you find someone to mimic and spar like Tom Cruise? And there's it's great validity in their, in their theory and strategy. Uh, last question on Dominic Cruz, and I want to ask you about uh, Anthony, which is uh, how would you describe sure. Dominic Cruz's footwork? I mean, what like what is the objective there? Is he trying to disguise what he's doing? Is that the reason why there's so much movement? Yes. I, you know, I mean, uh, you know, and one of the best things you can do in the, in the fight game is hit and don't get hit. Um, there, there's a really top uh, Gomez, one of the top um, Cuban amateur champions right now. He's a right-handed fighter. He, he reminds me of Dominic Cruz, and he's one of the best Olympic boxers on the planet right now. He's able to faint, fake, and especially with Dominic, uh, the unique footwork sets up very clean takedowns. You know, because he's got you on the chain thinking he's going to punch you, maybe kick me, and all of a sudden he does that, that sneaking kneecap and gets a clean double because he's got you shucking and jiving. You know, he's, he's kind of like uh, a great basketball player with a great crossover dribble. And then finally, we get to Anthony Pettis taking on Donald Cerrone. And here's the interesting part about this one, Duke. It's that the first time they fought, I mean, Pettis beat him in half a round and like it was nothing. Do, do y'all look at this like we have to maintain some kind of standard along that? Or, I mean, what, what is the mindset this time relative to last? I mean, um, Anthony's only had one other rematch in his career. It was uh, versus, uh, the great Benson Henderson. 
and uh, you know that that went his way. But you know, rematches are always a tough thing. It's it's hard to beat a man twice, and so I, I think you always have to take a different approach in the rematching we have. You know, we're not stuck on if we don't get the same result right away. We're stuck on winning, winning at all costs. Um, you know, whether it's submission, whether you know it's control, whether it's cage control, whether it's you know knockout early, knockout late. You know, it's we're not fixated on um, how it happens, but making it happen if that makes sense and what would you say about donald you know i, I had uh, anthony on the show yesterday i don't know if you know this duke since anthony fought cerrone he's fought 13 other times since cerrone fought anthony uh he's fought 26 times so i mean 13 fights for anthony since then is a lot 26 is like an astronomical amount but i can't tell if that's good or if that's bad i mean it's a lot of experience but, you know, that's a lot of tough guys without as, probably as much preparation as you could have gotten. I never know whether that's a good thing for him or not. Well, as well, Donald had a lot of kickboxing fights before he came into MMA. So um, the odometer has been a lot tougher on Donald than it has been on, on Anthony. You know, um, we haven't had a lot of clean knockouts, a lot of clean finishes, you know. So we, we had a tough TKO against Tony. We, you know, I pulled the plug. He, you know, we had a, you know, a submission loss, body shot, the max, and a rib injury against Poirier. Uh, we're not talking anything. It's not a guy who's getting starched by guys with head blows. Or, um, you know, the advantage for us is, you know, you look at uh, the Till fight, the Edwards fight against Cowboy, the Monsfidel fight, and then uh, finally the Connor fight. You know, that's a lot of trauma that. Uh, you know, he's taken and, you know, and, you know, Donald's a great fighter, respect him, I love the man, but, you know, and I, just in those fights I just aforementioned, he's a great offensive fighter, not a very good defensive fighter, and those few names I just mentioned prove that, that uh, his, you know, a lot of guys overlook those skills in MMA, um, definitely than in the striking world, you know, I mean, uh, I think it's very important to focus on that getting hit. The one, you're going to have a great life after fighting. Two, you're going to have a better career, and you're going to have a longer career, career longevity. Um, but I, I think that is the telltale in this fight. Is uh, I mean, and I've watched all his fights. I look for Donald to try and shoot a double leg right away or a single on Anthony, which we prepared for. You know, he did that in every one of those fights I ever mentioned. And then that's when uh, the guys uh, were able to put it to him. Last thing on this, everyone's been asking the fighters how they feel about you know, competing in a space with no crowd. But to me, it's actually a little more interesting about the coaches and the corners. Do you feel like a lack of crowd where now everything you yell is entirely audible to the opponent? Does that matter to you or not? Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, I've been coaching um, at a high level. I was in my brother's corner since the age of 18 in loud arenas. My brother was in some big fights. Uh, I've been in the Tokyo Dome with 50,000 people, the Bercy Arena with 20 in Paris. You know, so my voice has a lot of wear and tear on it. So um, this is going to be like an ultimate fighter type experience where I literally can just do what I've been doing in training camp, talk to Anthony the whole time and communicate with him very well. I look forward to it. In fact, it's been a very low-maintenance week. We got here one day later than we normally do. We have our own private training room. Um, even the way they process the medicals and the whole process, I hope that they keep with this process because uh, it's, uh, you know, 
been very streamlined, and I like it. Fair enough. Coach, really appreciate your time. Can't wait to see what is in store for all of us tomorrow, and in particular with Anthony against Donald Cerrone. Uh, your insight is always uh, appreciated, and your time as well. Enjoy your time there in Jacksonville. Thank you so much. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. All the best. There he is, Duke Rufus. The Ock and Barack Show. It's either make the big fights happen, fighters take less money, or stand their ground and wait till we get to a point where their audiences. That might not happen for another year. The big fighters like AJ, like Canelo, all of these big names, are they willing to wait a year without fighting? Can the networks deal with that? Can the promoters deal with that? And eventually it's going to come down to the point where you either take it or you leave it. There's no more money for you to get. The Ock and Barack Show, weekdays from noon till 3 Eastern, only on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Cobb, real quickly, if you can come to the mic here for just a second, please. Are you there? I want to make sure you're there before I commit to this bit. I am here, sir. Did you see these? Did you check out? So the schedules got released for the NFL teams yesterday, right? Correct. All right. Did you see the one for the Giants? Do you have any comment about it, which I know is your team? And any, any comment about it? Uh, I just quick glanced it. I know they're playing Cleveland, which should be interesting because we get to play Beckham, and I hope they lay him the hell out. Uh, but beyond that, no, I didn't really catch much else. Uh, well, I can listen aside from your vendettas against this man, the Redskins, which are my team who I, I love and hate at the same time. They are not in prime time at all. Uh, I think of the, uh, I think 13 of the games are at 1 PM, uh, on Sundays. <laughs> and this is the first time they've not been in prime time since 1982, 1982 Cobb. 1982. Can you believe the sorry state of my franchise relative to yours? I don't even want to hear that yours is half as bad as mine. No, we've had our moments these last few years, but we're nowhere near as bad as the Redskins. The Giants are still primetime football, baby. Well, that New York market is too good to give up, but they punted on D.C. They said F the nation's capital. And you know what? Kind of deserved. I mean, they have Chase Young now, which should be interesting. But at the same, there's not really a star player that you feel like you need to see every single week. So until they start winning, I, I, I totally understand what the NFL is doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not even mad about it. Like, for me, 1 p.m. games are my favorite. I'm done at 4. I don't have to stay up late. And all you're doing is saving us the embarrassment of not, you know, or of losing, I should say, in primetime, which is all they ever do. So people are bitter about it here in D.C. I'm like, for what? We don't deserve to be, and our lives are now easier. I know, by the way, if you end up winning, because now Haskins ends up being good or Chase Young is killing offenses, great. Well, then we can have a conversation later in the season about it. But to start, please, I've been, I have been. left FedEx when the Giants were up 44 to nothing on us, and Mark Sanchez was fumbling in the middle of winter, and I had a sweet and A1-level parking. So, <laughs> so... Thanks, but no thanks on the on the prime time. Don't want it. Okay, so let's do it now. It's time for my undercard five to watch. Another weekend and another fight card is upon us, including another blockbuster main and co-main event. But wait, there's more. A group of action-packed bouts are spread throughout the undercard, and Luke Thomas will take you down the ticket and point you in the direction of the five best fights to keep your eye on. This is the undercard five to watch. All right, time for the undercard five to watch. I got to tell you, there are a bunch of fights you could pick from this one. They're not bad. Some of them lack a lot of name value. 
And I think for the casual fan, you'll know, be like, I kind of know this person, or maybe I don't. Obviously, the main event of the prelim, so of the free portion of the ESPN card, is Cerrone versus Pettis, um, which is uh, two names a lot of fight fans will know. Certainly Cerrone, probably chief among them. And that'll be a, f- a fight that everyone wants to see. We've just gone over it. I don't need to say more about it, but obviously... On the prelim card, it'll air about 9.30 p.m. East Coast time. Donald Cerrone gets back to action, taking on former WEC and UFC champion Anthony Pettis. We've been over it a million times. There you go. Some of the other ones to take a look at here, which to me are really, really interesting. I'm going to start closer to the bottom of the card. First of all, the bottom of the card, hilariously, has a bunch of COVID truthers on there. <laughs> Sam Alvey was like, this thing's like the flu. No, it's not, Sam. And then you had Bryce Mitchell being like, this is a government conspiracy. No, it's not, Bryce. But they're both nice dudes, so we wish them the best just the same. Still, at the top of the ESPN uh, Plus early, early preliminary card is the return of Vicente Luque. Vicente Luque was on an incredible win streak and recently came up short when he finally got a big step up and he took on Wonderboy Thompson. And Wonderboy won pretty handily at UFC 244. But before that, he had beaten Nico Price, Chad LaPreeze, Jalen Turner, Brian Barberina, Derek Krantz, and then Mike Perry. Nico Price, he submitted with a darts joke in the second round back in 2017. So this is a rematch. He should win. But Nico Price is, how do I explain this? If you've never seen him compete, the guy is capable of incredible comebacks from the worst positions. And he does it over and over and over again. He is a threat everywhere. So Vicente Luque, who is a very talented, disciplined, well-rounded, defensively sound fighter, should win. But that is one where you have craziness potentially written all over it. I'd also say some other ones to pay attention to. Jacare Souza tried his hand at 205, light heavyweight. All those old light, uh, middleweights went up to light heavyweight, and it went poorly for all of them. Jacare losing to losing, excuse me, to Jan Blahovich. Chris Weidman getting knocked out by Dominic Reyes, and then Luke Rockhold getting his jaw broken, also by Jan Blahovich. Well, Jacare went back down to 185 pounds, and he's taken on Uriah Hall. That looks pretty interesting to me because Jacare can do it all, but he's older, a little bit longer in the tooth, and Uriah is now training with Saif Saud out of Fortis MMA. You know what time it is when those bubbas come around. They don't play. So he might be reborn as a strong word. But if anybody can get the most out of Uriah Hall, it's, it's Saif Saud, who, by the way, Uriah Hall was living at the gym, sleeping on an air mattress. He'd be quarantined at the gym. So excited to see what he can do there. We had her on the show last week. Carla Esparza returns to action against Michelle Waterson. Carla Esparza quietly putting together a nice little run here. She lost twice in 2018, but in 2019 beating Varan Jandaroba and then Alexa Grasso and then doing it in a great fight. She takes on Michelle Waterson, who is not the wrestler that she is by any stretch of the imagination, who came off that loss to Ioana and Jacek back in October of 2019. Um, this is a fight where if Esparza wins, dude, she might get a title shot again. And you got to look at it. You're saying to yourself, former champion herself, who would be ahead of her? I don't know. Um, obviously, they had Joanne Calderwood, I think, in the mix to to go ahead. But, like, dude, Carla Esparza lost to Ioana and Jacek. And I think folks had kind of written her off. Oh, oh, she got the title because she got it off of the Ultimate Fighter. And, you know, she couldn't really hang with the rest of the real division. Well, she gets past Waterson, and you got three or five win streak. I don't think she's that far from a title shot at that point. So big doings for her. Plus, if you're Waterson, 
you know, you want to get the the loss on your record, so the taste of it anyway, out of your mouth. Beating Carlos Sparza, Sparza, excuse me, a former champion in that weight class, and somebody who poses a serious physical wrestling threat to you, this is a great opportunity to show that you're still um, to be taken seriously as a potential title contender down the line. And then last but certainly not least, uh, this fight has just bonkers written all over it. It is the return of Fabricio Verdum, who I have argued is, if he's not the best fighter in the heavyweight division ever, he is somebody who beat all of them, beat Fedor, beat Noguera, um, you know, beat Cain Velazquez. I mean, the guy has an incredible resume in that regard, but... He lost more recently to Alexander Volkov. That was in 2018. He had a USADA suspension, so he's been gone. supposed to be two years, but I think he got it shortened. Uh, I'm not sure what the circumstances were exactly. Prior to that, here's what had happened. He had gone on an incredible run in 2012, uh, starting in 2012. He beat Roy Nelson, then he beat Mike Russo, then he beat a different Mike Russo. Then he beat uh, Noguera, and then he beat Travis Brown, then he beat Mark Hunt, and then he beat Cain Velasquez in 2015. Lost to Stipe after that, beat Travis Brown, but then lost to Overeem, and then he got wins over Walt Harris and Tybora. So he's been kind of up and down than losing to Volkov. Now he's 42. He ha- he is at a better weight. You saw the suspension. He's taken on Olenek. Now, Olenek should never be able to win. Well, I should say, should never be able to submit Fabricio. He is also old. He is also 42. Fabricio has, is one of the best submission-oriented when he wants to be heavyweights, ever, probably ever. But, you know, <laughs> where are these two guys at 42? I don't know the answer. And so that's what makes this intriguing. There are other good fights uh, on the prelim card. Bryce Mitchell and versus Charles Rosa has action written all over it. And I mentioned Safe Saud is going to be cornering Uriah Hall. He's also going to be in the corner of Ryan Spann, who is at light heavyweight, just looking like an absolute marauder. And he's taking on Sam Alvey. So there's action up and down this. You could pick your own five. Those are just the five that I have my eye on. But there's certainly a lot to choose from here. Talking to the biggest names in pro wrestling, this is Busted Open. WWE champion, Drew McIntyre. When I got handed the title, I stared at it. Nothing could have been more real than that moment when I played the montage in my head of being a kid and my mom and Nana giving me the money to travel 12 hours to learn to wrestle and the sacrifices my wife's put up with, especially during my independent time and everything that I've been through leading to that moment. It was unbelievable. Being real is the only way you can put it. It was very real. Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to noon. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation. Let's get right to it. Our guest is on the, well, I won't call it the hotline. It's the Zoom line. We got him on the Zoom machine. You know him from USA Today slash MMA Junkie. He's the guy that everyone's like, hey, Luke, is that you that always asks the first question at the uh, whatever event it is? I'm like, no, it's a guy that kind of sounds like me. We're, our, we're voice twins. It's MMA Junkie John Morgan. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good, man. Just uh, living life out here in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, getting on this Zoom meeting. The, uh, you know, the WebEx yesterday we had virtual media day. Everything's going online these days. All right. So set the scene for us that you're in a hotel. The hotel is empty, but for UFC staff, media, fighters, that sort of a thing, right? There's a couple other groups here. I think it's AEW, which is a professional wrestling group. And there's also a, a military uh, outfit of some kind. I mean, they're walking around at the fatigue and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's our understanding that everybody that is on property, including those other groups, 
uh, is adhering to similar policies in the terms of they're all getting COVID testing. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody's being kind of monitored the, the entire time. Would you go to this if you didn't feel safe? No, I wouldn't. You know, I do have a, a wife and a kid, uh, you know, and I'll say my wife is diabetic, which I think is, you know, one of the, the high risk issues. So, uh, you know, we, we had to have that conversation before I, before I got on the plane out here, I sat down with my family and, you know, explained what I knew about the policies and procedures from talking to USC, explained, uh, you know, what I would do, you know, agreeing basically with my wife, you know, here's, here's what she wants me to do. You know, here's what would make me feel comfortable that, that you're acting upon. So absolutely not. I mean, uh, listen, uh, I, I love my job um, and, uh, you know, I feel a responsibility to cover the sport. Uh, that's, I mean, that's what we signed up for as MMA journalists. Um, and this was a story, you know what I mean? To me, this was a story, whether it was in Lemoore, California, whether it was here. I mean, this is something that people needed to cover. That said, if I felt unsafe, you know, I don't know if I could be like one of those battleground reporters that's out there with bullets flying over their head and that sort of thing. And I don't know <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd put my life in danger like that. So if I, if I felt concerned, uh, I certainly wouldn't be here. And I will say this, you know, I mean, still – you know that they can't totally eliminate everything. So there are still a little bit of nerves, a little bit of concern, but I will say, uh, you know, I got to say kudos to what the USC has done so far, man, the, the steps that they've taken, it, lo- it looks like they're really trying to take this seriously. It, it, here's what I sort of noticed from this. It's like whatever policies they've instituted, um, everything seems to have gone fairly smoothly, right? The weigh-ins today seem to have gone fairly smoothly. The media day yesterday, tremendously different, of course, but still fairly smoothly. Morning check-in, I guess, when you guys got there, you could tell me if it went smoothly or not, but it seems like the trains are leaving the station on time, so to speak. A hundred percent. And here's my thing with this, Luke, is it's clear to me in, in watching this all firsthand and seeing how many people are involved and seeing how many steps are being taken, that there was an extensive, amount of planning and discussion and, and care uh, taken in executing everything. And, you know, I, you know, Dana White, I, I know a lot of people will take shots at him when they can. I, I, you know, typically have a pretty good relationship with him, but I did disagree with the way he handled this, man. I, you know, the, the, the whole, don't worry about it. I got it. I mean, I understand I've been around Dana enough. I think I get Dana speak sometimes. And I think what he was trying to say is, guys, don't sweat it. I've got people that are handling this situation. I promise you we're addressing everything in the best manner possible. But I think it would have done them a big favor to verbalize that up front. Now, I wish there would have been more transparency from the very start about what everything it was happening. But I, but I can say from seeing it firsthand, it's clear that they took this seriously. Yeah, last thing is, so it was so funny about this is, and I wrote this on Twitter last night, which is uh, the more transparent they've been about this, the better the press, <laughs> right? Yeah. I get it. it, it, To me, it backfired. You know, I don't know if it was necessarily a strategy on Dana's part as much as just, you know, absolute frustration that he's like, I don't care. I don't need to tell you anything. And, you know, so don't worry about it. It's going to be handled, you know, and and, and in some ways it's true, right? I mean, in some ways, listen, he's not, you know, obligated to say anything to us. You know, he's obligated to meet, uh, you know, legal uh, recommendations and safety guidelines and all those things. And he's beholden to his staff. He's beholden to his fighters, you know, to, to ensure their safety. He's not really beholden to tell us anything, but I do think that it kind of backfired because I think now, again, now that I'm seeing everything firsthand and I've been trying to do my best at documenting it online and, and giving people a little peek behind the curtain, the, the more I see, the more I say, yeah, man, they, they took this seriously. They, they looked at every aspect of it. They really evaluated, you know, where the danger points were and, and how they could make it as safe as possible. Um, by the way, before we get to some of the fights themselves, Dana did a scrum today, which I'm assuming you were in attendance for. Anything noteworthy that came out of that? Uh, I mean, noteworthy in the way that it was. I don't know if we can use the word scrum anymore. I mean, there's like 10 of us spread out six feet apart, all in a ballroom. It's uh, Even Dana, as he walked up to the microphone, had to laugh a little bit. He's like, this is weird. 
but no, you know, listen, uh, you know, we, we talked about the, the safety regulations and that sort of thing. We, you know, I, I tried to press him and see if he could put a dollar figure on how much they've invested in doing this. And he said, you know, he, he kind of shied away from it. I'd also talked to Lawrence Epstein yesterday as well, COO of the UFC, and kind of asked him the same question. They declined to put a dollar figure on it, but they did both say significant losses. You know, obviously loss of revenue of ticket sales, loss of revenue of their bar business, because, you know, those can't be happening right now. And they say they have a very significant commercial business. So loss of revenue there. And then serious added, you know, cost in operations and the way they have to do things because of the added safety measures and everything that's being implemented. But they said, listen, you know, we're, we're, we're committed to doing this and uh, we're going to go forward. And, and so, you know, they talked about that. So I will say a, a very newsworthy in terms of fighter Conor McGregor. Uh, I think I believe it was Oscar Willis from the Mac Life that brought it up and said, hey, listen, you know, you're talking about how you're going to have to operate. You know, of course, they're going to try to get to the Apex later this month in Las Vegas to start holding events there. They realize crowds aren't going to be around for a while. And, and uh, Oscar Willis said, what about Conor McGregor? You know, with Conor McGregor, can you give up a gate of that size? And would Conor even want to fight uh, in front of, uh, you know, no fans in attendance? And Dana actually admitted, listen, I, we'll talk, but I got to say, it is hard to give up a gate like that. You're talking about multiple, multiple millions of dollars. And mm. I'm not even sure Conor wants to do it. So it's interesting. I think the, the, the immediate future for Conor McGregor in, in hopes he's saying he wants to fight, but we'll, we'll see what that happens. So uh, I thought that was an interesting tidbit to say that, hey, man, without crowds, putting on a Conor fight, it might not make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's more. It's like the boxers, Bud Crawford being like, I get paid off of the audience. I get a cut of the gate. There's no gate. I'm not competing. John Morgan joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Um, what was the other question I was going to ask you? Oh, yes. Um, pay-per-view. Everyone's asking me. I'll ask you. What is your sense about how well it's going to do? All right, so if you listen from Dana White's point of view, he said today it's trending very well. He said it is trending very well, but I, I'm, I'm not – I mean, what is very well. I, I don't think it's going to be record. I know a lot of people are saying, man, this is the first sport back and nobody's got anything going on and, and, and everybody's, you know, needing live sport. This is going to be huge. And I get that attitude. I think the ESPN ratings will be pretty, pretty strong. You know, there's not, it hasn't been a live sport, but man, a, a pay-per-view right now, there's a lot of people in this world that are, that are hurting that aren't going to be able to justify putting down that $65. You know, I mean, if you've been laid off from your job or you're furloughed indefinitely or whatever the case may be, and you're, you're trying to cut back, you're looking at, how do we save money? It may be tough to justify that $65 to your family or why you need to spend it. And, you know, if you're following the guidelines the way you should, you, you can't have a bunch of people over at the house and split the price of it, right? So I don't know. I, I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit, I don't want to say concerned because that doesn't matter to me if they make money or not, but I, I don't think that it's necessarily going to be some record-breaking number. I think it'll be strong. Uh, you know, it is, a, it is a great card top to bottom. It doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a Conor McGregor, a Brock Lesnar, a Ronda Rousey, you know, the, the pinnacle of the sport, but it has some great fights on it. So I think good, but you know, I'm not anticipating any kind of record breaking numbers. Um, outside of the co-main because Henry Cejudo is Henry and Dominic is Dominic. I have noticed certainly in the, in the main event and then elsewhere throughout the card, a little bit of camaraderie, right? Everyone kind of in it uh, with a shared fate kind of scenario. Now, Tony's very much his own man, but I guess, I'm, you know, hearing the phone call that they did with the media, you were there, you've seen them this week. Um, yeah, they're, you know, they're always kind of on edge a little bit, but they seem to have a mutual respect, those two, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll say the two outside of Charles Rosa and Bryce Mitchell do not like each other very much either, by the way. They, they, they don't. They're kind of going at it. Fair um, point. Yeah, you know, listen, listen, there is a little bit of bad look. Boy, by the way, the Cejudo Cruz face-off today, get, take a look at that one when you get a chance. Uh, that was a really good one. 
But there, I think there is a camaraderie overall with the community, man, to be honest with you. And I love the main event. I mean, Ferguson and Gaethje, I actually tweeted about the other day. I, I didn't get to hear the media call live, but once I went back and listened to that audio, man, I, it, to me, I get it, man. Headlines sell. And, and listen, you know, you know what web traffic does and, you know, what gets clicked and what doesn't. It's always the hatred. And he said this and she said that. And, you know, blowing it out of the water like that. I hate that guy. I, I love the main event where they're just saying, dude, that, that guy's a badass and I'm a badass. We're going to find out who's the badass. So I love that. And honestly, overall, the, the whole card, man, um, it's, it's, uh, it's unique to see everybody back, man. So it's, it's a neat feel around here, you know, where everybody's excited to get back to action. You know, this uncertainty that is laid around the sport for the last two months, you know, seems to be kind of fading away a little bit. For the co-main event, what? This is a question. I I I just believe this is true. I, maybe if you disagree, I doubt you do. But let's just see. You know the story of Dominic loses time, come back, comes back and beats Mizugaki. Loses time, come back, comes back and it was controversial, but he beats TJ. Did lose to Cody after fighting Uriah. Takes now three and a half years off, five invasive surgeries. If he comes back and he beats the Triple C, <laughs> I got to tell you, dude, that is one of the most impressive stories of comebacks and injuries in all of sports forget mma man that's at the that's that's i'm not saying it's better than tiger winning the masters certainly in the conversation no i agree with you i um you know what listen the main event we're all excited about that if you're an mma fan there's no way you can't like the main event it's just two all aggressive you know all action guys it's gonna be violent it's gonna be fantastic but the co-main event is so intriguing because of exactly what you're saying dominic cruz what he's done what he's gone through you know i mean the, the times that he's had to left when, when most people consider him the greatest fan of weight of all time, but he just hasn't been able to show it that often in the UFC. Listen, he's got the skills. If he can come back at that level that he was performing at three and a half, four and a half, five years ago, then he can absolutely beat Henry Cejudo. He's got that game, but will he? You know, that's the big question mark, and it's difficult to say. I mean, just because you've done it before, I mean, yes, that's a great precursor to say, well, he's, he's done it before. Yeah, but every case is different when you start talking about surgeries involved in invasive procedures just because you've had a history of coming back before doesn't mean you can do it again so i'm, I'm really intrigued by this uh you know it's again it's, it's not like this you know blood boiling heated rivalry but triple c just being the way he is the, the cringe inducing cat that he is it's, it's starting to stick it to, to, to dominic cruz a little bit and you could see their face off the day there was a little bit of tension and uh, they were they were jawing at each other a little bit as they walked off the stage so uh, i'm intrigued by that and, to, and more directly to your point because Man, it would be such an incredible accomplishment for Dominic Cruz. It would add to an already outstanding legacy. Uh, give me somebody that you've picked up on being there, seeing them. I don't know. Give me an under-the-radar story there from some fighter. We, we, everyone talks about all the big heavy hitters with good reason, but you're there on the scene in Jacksonville. Who have you seen or talked to that you got like a, uh, like a good vibe from about um, what might be different or, or what, what's in store for us on Saturday? You know what I'll tell you is that um, this is going to be one thing to monitor going forward, man. Fight week this week has been so different. You know, that, that virtual media day we had yesterday was the only access we've had to the fighters. They have been away from us. You know, and you know, fight week before, it, it was that opportunity to address things. And, yeah, it might not be X's and O's, but, you know, when you've been covering people for years and you've been around them dozens and dozens of times, you sense things in their body language, you pick up on things that they say, you pick up on things in the way they're acting. We didn't get access to that this time around. So uh, that was a little bit interesting. I was actually uh, talking to Oscar Willis last night. We were, we were doing the podcast in May Roadshow, and I was saying, man, I feel like I have less little nuggets of information that I, that I picked up firsthand this week than any other time. Um, you know, I did, I did fly with Francis Naganu from Vegas. We just happened to be on the same plane, so I got to spend more time around him than, than anybody else. And, I mean, he's definitely confident coming into this. Obviously, that fight with Jorginho is a big one. 
Um, I, you know, he feels confident that he's going to be able to win that fight. You know, we did see Jeremy Stevens miss weight today. So, I mean, that doesn't take a sleuth to figure out there. I mean, he was five pounds over. So that's a, a little bit concerning. Um, and I just speak to Greg Hardy a little bit uh, on the phone. And, uh, you know, listen, he's, uh, he's changed over his entire coaching staff. You know, Dean Thomas, of course, kind of split ways with the American top team. And that was his lead coach. So he's had to undergo a whole different, you know, set of, of training regimen. You know, in, in the, the same way that everybody's doing things different, yes, of course. But he's had to change his coaching staff as well. So uh, some interesting stuff there. And, and Greg Hardy's been pretty open, too, about the fact that he is concerned about, you know, what it's like to be competing. Uh, at this time with the asthma that he has. But he says, listen, this, this is what I do, so I'm going to go do it. Greg Hardy's a weirdo. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. He's just a weird dude. Uh, all right, before I let you go here, what's the media plan for tomorrow? For folks, I mean, I know usually you go, you check in, you're either in the media room or you're uh, on press row, but I'm guessing there is there is there a press row? Like, what's the plan? I don't think so. I, that, per my understanding, I don't think there is a press row. I think we're all going to be in the back and we're going to be set up the way we were today for the weigh-ins, which basically, so we'll, we're going to be in the back, with, and, and there will be a, a table, kind of like a dais, but it'll be one person at a time. So the fighters will come back after they win, as they normally do, but they will be separated away from us. They will be at a table on a stage. And we're all at t- individual tables. So instead of standing shoulder-to-shoulder scrum, you know, putting the, the, the cameras all around on tripods, we've basically got individual workstations. And, and I, this is interesting, because I was like, well, that's great, but me thinking from a tech point of view, okay, uh, the fighter is obviously going to have a microphone, um, but how is our audio going to get picked up? They're actually going to have individual microphones at every single one of our tables so that if we have questions mm. to ask, we've got a microphone right there that can be you know, picked up by the audio and streams and all that stuff. So uh, social distancing, uh, mask has been made clear the entire time you're on property uh, at the arena. Masks are to be worn by everybody. In fact, the fighters were told today that even the cornermen will be required to wear masks uh, even as they're cornering in the middle of a fight. Um, so yeah, listen, I mean, they're, they're again, I mean, commitment to this, man. They're, they're taking these serious steps. Crazy, crazy times. Oh, last thing. Have you heard, uh, my producer wants to know why is when you're five pounds over, that's more than a miscalculation. Something had to go really wrong. Like you got to be injured or something. Is Stevens injured or what's the deal there? I don't know. We haven't heard from him yet. Uh, in fact, we just found out just before we jumped on air here that the, the fight was going to go on, that it was a 30% uh, penalty there. So we haven't had a chance to speak to him yet. Uh, so we don't know what's going on. But yeah, a red flag. I mean, he had that. He definitely had that defeated look. It didn't, you know, like you said, it, it didn't match the way he was speaking. I mean, when we talked to him yesterday, man. It seemed like he was fired up, ready to go. Wasn't trying to lay down any, you know, pre-excuses or any kind of framework for why something bad might happen. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, listen, you know, there isn't a sauna here. People have to use those individual infrared saunas. I mean, listen, there are little adjustments that had to be made. I don't want to, I don't want to make an excuse. I don't want to give a pass for him um, because everybody else made weight. But, um, you know, I think in this situation, we, we probably got some questions to ask and find out exactly what happened. It's going to, man, tomorrow is going to be interesting. John, I wish you nothing but safe travels. Enjoy the weirdness. We're looking forward to your coverage and appreciate your insight as always. Good, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you, brother. Thank you. There he is from MMA Junkie as well as USA Today. That is John Morgan. You can follow him on Twitter at MMA Junkie John. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.